Thank you, Robert. Keep that passage open before you just now, and we're going to go straight there. Uh, Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which uh, has spoken to us so many times in the past, has become such a significant part of our lives as we've heard your voice speak and we've been changed. Lord, we pray that you'd come and meet with us now in this part of your word. We're separated from it uh, by, by centuries and millennia. It's an entirely different culture, and yet we believe that you, the same God whom we worship today, was at work in the events recorded for us here. Help us to think of these things. Help us to be open to your spirit. Help us to hear as you speak. Amen. In the summer of 2002, Claire and I holidayed in Italy, and we were able to spend three days of that holiday in Florence. Now, as, as you may know, it's a, a beautiful city uh, laden down with art treasures, mostly from the Italian Renaissance. Now, don't be too impressed. I can hardly tell whether a painting has been hung the face to the wall or the back to the wall. That's about as much as I know about art. But I was really surprised when we spent a couple of days going around some of the art galleries there, just how much I enjoyed that. And the highlight for me, anyway, was going to the, the Gallery dell'Accademia, one of the smaller galleries in Florence, but it's one that gets lots and lots of visitors. People come from all around the world to this small gallery to see the showpiece that's kept there, a huge marble statue created by the Florentine artist Michelangelo. It's a massive sculpture showing David, the biblical character, as a young man, strong, muscular, and extremely impressive. He's a sort of guy, fellas, I don't know if if you know the picture I'm talking about, but he he makes you feel somewhat inadequate when you see him. He looks like he's been at the gym uh, more, more than most Artists of of Michelangelo's day, they they often uh, used the Bible for their inspiration. So oftentimes they had sculptures of of biblical characters. Uh, So lots of other famous artists uh, do this. They pick up these these Hebrew heroes of the Bible and, and, and make pieces of art. Although they were interested in biblical characters in general, there was something that drew them to David these artists, there's something about David in particular that captured their imagination and that, that led to so many artworks being created. The biblical writers seem to have been drawn with David too in a unique way. There's something about David that captures their imagination. There's no other life in the Bible that gets more attention than David's. Not Abraham, not Moses, not Paul and not even Jesus. There's no character we're told more about uh, in the Bible than David. We know more about the the, the ongoing day-to-day activities of David's life than anyone else. 
We learn about his shepherding, his musicianship, his songwriting. We learn about him as a king and as a father. We learn so much. And here in the story that we've just read, we're introduced to David. We learn of his dad, Jesse, and his seven brothers. What's remarkable about David, though, in the Bible is not just the amount that's written about him. That's impressive. But it's the kind of things that the biblical writers say about David. Whenever the prophet Samuel goes to Saul in chapter 13, the previous king, and he tells him that God's going to replace him as king, he says this, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him king of his people. Now, by now we know who that is. That's David. A man after his own heart, after God's own heart. Whenever you read the the biblical story of David, it all begs a question. What's so special about David? What is it about him that makes him into a man after God's own heart? Is he a really good guy? Is he somebody who never steps out of line, never gets anything wrong, never makes any mistakes? If you know the story, you'll know that that's not the case. There's something different, and it's something I want you to keep an eye out for over these uh, Sunday mornings as we come to this part of God's Word to see what it is about David that allows the biblical writers to call him a man after God's own heart. Let's get stuck into today's story then. 1 Samuel 16. It's an embarrassing kind of a story in the outset and and quite frightening too. Samuel's arrived in the little village of Bethlehem and Samuel was the judge. So if you imagine a scenario where the court is not down in Belfast in a fixed place, but where the court comes to your village... That's a little bit of what is going on here. Samuel's the policeman and the judge rolled into one and he's doing a lap and he's arrived in Bethlehem. So whenever you see Samuel arriving, you're not, you're not really welcoming him, Samuel. You're, you're sort of looking over your shoulder. Why has Samuel come? Has somebody stolen a cow? Has somebody cheated in a business deal? Did somebody see me speeding through that red light? Whenever the judge shows up, immediately people's consciences are sharpened. It's a bit like that feeling you get when you're driving in the car and you look in the rearview mirror and the car behind you is a police car. That's what it felt like when Samuel arrived in Bethlehem. But it wasn't too long before Samuel put the people at ease. He let them know why he'd come. He'd come to lead them in a sacrifice, he says to lead them in a celebration before God. Everybody's just relaxing now. He's not here to judge. He's not here because I don't have a TV license. It's something different than that. I can relax. People join Samuel then for the sacrifice. A heifer was killed. The barbecue was set up. And before long, the whole village was caught up in something like a country fair. I don't know if you know that about Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, The people gathered in many cases to eat uh, the food that had been sacrificed to the Lord. Uh, This ends up being a country fair, something maybe a bit like the Arlamas Fair in Ballycastle. Everybody's at ease. 
they're before God and they're in each other's company, but there's something going on behind the scenes that most people here don't know about. Samuel singles out Jesse and his sons, and he gives them a a personal invitation to the celebration. He seems very concerned that they'll be at the sacrifice. People don't know what's going on, but we know because the the storytellers told us in verse 1. We're told that King Saul had been ruling the Israelites at the time. We've been told in the previous chapters that Saul, who started very well as a king, by the way, He was a wonderful king for a period of time. He's gone off the rails. He stopped doing the things that God wants him to do and started to do his own thing. In chapter 13, Samuel the prophet visits Saul and he says to him, you've acted foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God. If you had, he would have established your throne over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure because you've not kept the Lord's command. So Samuel knows all of this. He knows why he's in Bethlehem that day. God was going to choose a new king. So later that day, just before sundown, Samuel stands in the village square, all prepared for the ceremony, and and he was tense. You'd expect him to be tense. He was going to choose a new king while the existing king was still alive. If you know anything about the history of humankind, you'll know that kings don't take too kindly to new kings arriving on their watch. What Samuel was doing was was dangerous stuff, the kind of thing that could get you killed. But Samuel was ready. He had his little oil flask. He had it slung into his girdle, He was ready to anoint a new king. So when Jesse and his boys arrive, Samuel starts to interview them and examine them one at a time. It has a bit of the feel of an X-Factor audition here, I think. Uh, The contestants, one by one, are, are paraded past the judge. Look at him. What did you say your name was? Eliab? Splendid. He he certainly looks like the man. Oh, Eliab. Good afternoon, Eliab. It's good to see you. But it wasn't Eliab. That's weird, thought Samuel. The one and only king Israel had ever had in their whole history was a a tall, splendid-looking giant of a man. So it's not unusual, really, that, that Samuel thought that the next king also should be a a tall, strapping man with film star looks. Just think of what God could do with a leader like this, with this kind of appeal and charisma. Samuel had been quite sure that Eliab would be king number two. But no, not Eliab. Then came Abinadab. Now, he wasn't quite as tall as Eliab, but he was smart. Everybody in Jerusalem knew that he'd just come back. He'd just graduated with first-class honors from the University of Jerusalem. He used big words. He used them often and always. He just let everyone else in the village know how smart he was. And Samuel was looking at him. He heard him answer his questions. And he thought, just imagine how God's people would benefit from such a smart leader. Somebody as 
as able and as gifted as Abinadab? Nope. It wasn't Abinadab. Uh, And when Shammah, son number three, arrived, Samuel dismissed him with a shake of the head. It it wasn't Shammah either. Nor was it son number four or five or six or seven. In turn, each one was rejected. In turn, the tension is building here. This son, surely it'll be this one, will be chosen. No. Turns out it wasn't any of them. The show was over. Jesse is humiliated and Samuel's frustrated and confused. Lord, I've done what you've told. I've made this journey into this this wee backwater of a village. I've done everything you've asked me to do. What's going on here? Have I lost my prophetic edge? So he goes over the instructions again in his head. Bethlehem, right, yes, this is Bethlehem. Jesse, yes, this is Jesse. And then he asks a question, Jesse, Jesse, are all your sons here? Is, is there another son? And as it turns out, and as the whole world knows by now, there was another son. At this point, he's not even given a name. He's just called the youngest, the baby brother. The Hebrew word here has undertones of of insignificance. Somebody who doesn't count for very much. Certainly not a potential future king. This, This wee fella was the runt of the litter. And you can tell that that his father's opinion of him was pretty low by the way he treats the boy. He gives him the job of shepherding. If you know anything about that culture, that's the job nobody wants. When the angels appeared to the shepherds on the night Jesus was born, it wasn't because they were somehow wonderfully wonderfully appropriate guys. They They were the worst of the worst in the culture. It was the job nobody wanted. He was out of the way. He was ignored. And on this particular day, nobody dreamt of bringing him into Bethlehem. And yet, David is chosen. Chosen and anointed. Chosen not for what any person saw in him. Not his father, not his brothers, not even Samuel. Chosen by God for what God wanted to do through him. Folks, there's something very significant in this well-known story that that I think we often overlook. David, to put it in, in pretty blunt and crude language, David is very ordinary. His dad doesn't present him to Samuel because it probably didn't even occur to him. He didn't think there was any possibility that this youngest son would have any part to play in God's plans. And yet, what happens here is astonishing. God chooses David, this runt and this shepherd, to be a king. Now, whenever God chose David to be king, he chose David to represent his own rule on earth. Folks, doesn't this tell us 
something about God. He includes ordinary men and women in his plans. Plain people. People who maybe never, ever finish top of the class. People who are unnoticed, mostly, by their neighbors and by their peers. God chooses people without social status or public recognition. People like me and like you. Folks, don't, don't take my word for that just on the basis of a, a simple Old Testament story here. We never see God more clearly than when Jesus walked among us. How did Jesus operate? Was Jesus' hallmark not that he spent life with the ordinary? That he was born the son of two peasants? That he grew up in obscurity in in the Galilee region? That he exercised most of his public ministry there, well away from the limelight and the uh, and the popularity of, of, of Jerusalem. And when he chose people to help him, what kind of people did he choose? Did he go to the university and troll for the academics? Did he go into the, the business world and, and go for the high-flying successful? Or did he choose uneducated fishermen and dubious tax collectors? Jesus worked with ordinary men and women. Think of the church that Jesus left behind after his death and resurrection. From day one, these were ordinary people. Whenever he writes to the Christian church in Corinth, Paul says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. We are ordinary. Christians are ordinary people, but listen, we're chosen. Writing his first letter to the followers of Jesus Christ in in Corinth, Paul says this, or sorry, Peter, Peter says this in his first letter, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. Folks, Peter was one of these ordinary people, a Galilean fisherman, a man with a very ordinary domestic life. And Jesus approaches him and chooses him and changes his life entirely. It's Peter who says, listen, folks, you're priests. You're holy ones. You are royalty. Nobody, nobody has more power in this world than the power I give you. You are those who will rule this world. You're chosen. You're God's very own people. Friends, I wonder if we're beginning 
to see this. Do you see now that we can't ever talk about being an ordinary Christian? There's no such thing as an ordinary Christian. Every Christian is extraordinary, not because of who we are, but because of what God does when he chooses us. If you're in Christ this morning, you're nothing ordinary. You're chosen. One of my professors in college um, is a gentleman you may have heard of, Eugene Peterson. He translated the, the message version of the Bible and is well known for that. He, he also has written uh, quite a number of Christian books. I remember a story he used to tell about his granddaughter coming to him. Um, I think she was five or six at the time, quite young, very, very, very full of joy and enthusiasm. And she used to bound up to him and say, Papa, Papa, tell me a story and make sure I'm in it. And you've maybe done that with your children or your grandchildren. I know I have with our guys where I tell them stories that they are, are in. They're one of the, the key characters. Tell me a story and make sure I'm in it. Folks, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then this part of God's word that we've looked at here this morning is, is a part of your story. It's the opening chapter of the David story, but it's also the opening chapter for each one of us. You and I are in this. This story which tells of how God chose David is also our story. God reaches into this world, into to insignificant towns and villages, into insignificant families, to insignificant people, and he says, you, and you, and you, and you. You're going to be mine. Not because you're anything special, but because you're special to me. I choose you. Just look with me in closing at verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Ordinary though we are, God chooses us. Ordinary though we are, he chooses to pour his spirit into us. To indwell us. God living in us. Isn't that staggering? This life of faith, of David's faith, and of our faith. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. God chooses us. And that's only the beginning. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful reminder in your word that that you choose us not because of who we are, but because of who you are. 
You choose us not because of something special in us, but something special in you, your goodness and your kindness and your grace. Lord, show us this morning the deep, deep joy that is ours because we're chosen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.